You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. So tonight we're going to begin this uh, four-part series in Romans 8, and we're going to be focusing this evening on verses 1 to 13. 1 to 13. Uh, So the first little section this evening as we look at this lovely chapter together. Let me pray for us as we do that. Lord God, you have declared your kingdom is among your people. So we would ask you that you would open our eyes to see it, open our ears to hear it, and our hearts to hold on to it. And may we make our hands ready to serve it. This we pray in our Savior's name. Amen. I don't know whether, how many of you have read the book, The Pilgrim's Progress. In the second part of that book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there is a wonderful scene in which Christiana comes across a man and he's sweeping up twigs and dust and straw with a muckrake. But he has his head down and behind him stands a figure holding a beautiful heavenly crown. Beautiful, glittering, and gold. The problem is, he doesn't see it. He's so concentrated on the muck. And it's such a vivid picture of so many in life, and even those of us in our Christian lives at times as well, with our heads down, dealing in the strawy stuff of life, whilst ignoring the crown that's just hovering there waiting for us. Romans 8 is one of those glittering chapters of the Bible, and if only we read it more and gazed longer at its beauty and grasped its glory for ourselves, what a difference it would make to us all as we spend so much of our time in the dust of life. For this is a chapter that begins with no condemnation and finishes out with no separation. A chapter that drips the good news of the gospel in every turn of phrase. And if you're asked to summarize Paul's letter to the church at Rome as he writes to a group of believers in the capital city of the Roman Empire, whom he hopes to meet at some point soon, it would simply be described as a gospel letter. But what's the gospel? It's a word we hear a lot, isn't it? We even sing it. But what is the gospel? If you're asked to summarize it in a couple of sentences yourself, what is the gospel? R.C. Sproul puts it really helpfully like this. The Greek word euangelion, which means good news, has a rich background. There the meaning of the term gospel was simply an announcement of a good message. In ancient days, when soldiers went out to battle, the people back home waited breathlessly for a report back from the battlefield. And once the outcome was known, marathon runners were dashing back to give their report, and the watchman in the watchtower would look out and keep an eye to see who was coming in the distance. Finally, when he would see the dust moving as the runners sped back to the city to give a report of the battle, the watchmen were trained to keep an eye on the legs and the feet of the runner. The watchmen were trained to tell where the runner's legs were churning, whether the news was good or bad. If the runner was doing the survival shuffle and just about making it, it was a grim report. The battle was lost. But if they looked out and saw the runner's legs flying, with the dust going everywhere, 
It was good news. The battle was won. That's where the word gospel comes from. And this wonderful letter that contains this golden chapter bursts into our lives like an excited marathon runner from the front line. And he's there and he's saying to us, we've won. In Jesus, we have the victory. And as Paul unpacks the good news of Jesus in the context of Romans 8, he does so by reminding us of a couple of things. Here's the first thing. Something old. Something old. Look at Romans 8 verse 1. Read there in that beautiful verse, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you're a discerning reader of that verse, you will notice something very striking. So if you read there is therefore now no condemnation, there must have been a then when there was condemnation. Nod your head if you're with me. Yeah? If there's therefore now no condemnation, there must have been a then when there was condemnation. And logic leads us to this conclusion. When we were out of Christ and not in Christ, before Christ came, we were confronted but nothing but the law. Verse 2 explains this for us. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit he gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So you've been set free from a law of sin and death. Verse 3 explains it further. What the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by sinful flesh, God did. Now, whenever we read about this word, the law, here in the Bible, it's shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Some might say it was all summarized by the Ten Commandments, and that's right. And these are the great principles in life that God gave his people to live by. And there's nothing wrong with laws. There's nothing wrong with the law. Laws are good. In almost every area of life, we depend upon laws, whether we recognize it or not. On a very basic level, if some drivers around Macrofelt ignored the rules of the road tomorrow morning, and come Monday morning they fancy driving on the right-hand side of the road, it'd be chaos. But we drive out and we immediately go on the left-hand side because that's what you do. That's the law of the land. It saves us from chaos. Even think about this. No one's written this law down. But imagine you're in a supermarket queue. There's an unwritten code that the first in line goes next. You know, if Mrs. Jackson pushes her trolley past four people in front of her at Marks and Spencer's in Cookstown, I dread to think of the carnies that would ensue. There'd be couscous and patty everywhere, wouldn't there? And yes, rules are good, and they fulfill a purpose, because they bring order. The Ten Commandments are principles that have lived out, bring safety to a community. They bring happiness in homes. They bring our reverence to God. In fact, the law, some of you might know this, but the law is a mirror image of God's character. The law reflects God's nature. God is faithful and trustworthy and true. All the things that are outlined in the Ten Commandments. But you see, whenever you look into the law of God, whenever I look into the law of God, we very quickly realize if we look into the mirror of the law that we have failed. And at that moment, the law is not an instrument that saves us, but at that moment, the law becomes something that condemns us. 
It shows us how far short of God we fall. And as we look into the law, we stand guilty before God. The law can't save us from our sin because our human weakness has robbed the law of its power. It's not that the law is bad. It's that we aren't good. And then there are also folks who have been struggling in their Christian lives and wrestling with temptation and frustrated about falling into sin and the same sin over and over and over again. Paul doesn't ignore the Christian in this either. We're not just talking about people who aren't yet Christians. We're talking about people who are Christians. If you have your Bible open there, let's just take a quick look at Romans 7, verses 21 to 25. This is Paul writing as a Christian. Romans 7, verse 21. He says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And just when you think he's given up hope, then he says in verse 25, But thanks be to God who delivers me to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see there's a battle going on? There is actually a battle raging where two armies collide, the people of God and the sins that threaten to defeat us. Christian friend here tonight, just nod it with me. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt that the law of sin is winning even though you're a Christian? And you find yourself doing the things that you didn't want to do and not doing the things that you should have done. That your life, your mind, your heart, your eyes, your wants, your desires are a constant battleground. And maybe sometimes come the end of a day when that's happened, you feel beaten and beat up and bruised. But then there's the gospel. For having looked at the old law, it's time to rejoice in something new. A law that saves us. For the gospel runners have returned from a place where the battle for our souls was intense, but the battle for our souls has already been won. And I want you to see these other runners coming back for us, these runners who bring gospel good news. Let's watch one run back over here. Here he comes, and he's come from Golgotha. And another one comes running back here from a garden tomb just outside Jerusalem. And then here's another one from a, a hill just outside Jerusalem as they've watched Jesus ascend to heaven. And then there's another runner here who's caught a glimpse of Jesus as the lamb on the throne. And each one of them, together, all four of them, begin to hoist the flag. And it flies high over the Christian heart. And it says as you look up from your battle-scarred and sin-marred life, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that flag flies over you if you're a believer tonight. And that flag sends flutters and ripples of relief right down that flagpole into your soul tonight. For even if you feel beaten up and you feel you've lost out again and you've sinned again and you've come down to that level again, you look up and you see there, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Where does this relief from frustration and failure come from? Something old? Something new? That's the second thing. Because you see, what the law was powerless to do, 
because it was weakened by our sinful flesh. Look at the middle of verse 3. God did. I just love those two words. God did. We couldn't, but God did. And how does he do it? Well, he explains. The first way he does it is by sending his son. And this incredibly new intervention of God in an altogether unexpected and unprecedented way comes very personally and powerfully as his son enters the world. Look at verse 3, where he described there as Jesus coming in the likeness of sinful man. You see, it doesn't say there he comes as a sinful man because Jesus wasn't sinful. Neither does it say he just came, you know, like a floaty human being, almost like a spirit. No, he comes just like a man. In fact, he is a man. Born as a baby in Bethlehem. Raised in a carpenter's home in Nazareth. Gets lost in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy. Shares his space at home with his brothers, James and Jude and the rest. Shares the looks of his mother, Mary. Tired after a day's work. He gets thirsty in the Samaritan sunshine. He gets sleepy on the boat as it bobs across the Sea of Galilee. He gets angry and distressed at the death of his best friend, Lazarus. He's moved to tears by the lack of faith of his countrymen. He's shattered by the thought of having to say his goodbye to his family and friends. He's in agony of soul as he contemplates the cross. He collapses under the weight of its crossbar as he carries it up the hill to Jerusalem. He sweats great drops of blood. His head is scarred with thorns. His body is blackened by the beatings. His mouth is dry. His body racked. His, hurt is, his heart is lurching. The pain is searing as he hangs for hours exposed in the midday heat. That is a human. The Son of God entering this world, living as a sinless man on behalf of sinful men and women. Oh, how his humanity was real. He felt it all. Every nail driven into his hands, every breeze on his face, every tear that ran down his cheeks, every knot in his stomach, every smile on his face, every spit from his enemies, every agony at the cross, he felt it all. And if the law is a reflection of God's holy perfection and divine character, if that is the reflection of who God is, and that's what we are to reflect ourselves against, Jesus is the only man that ever lived who was able to walk straight up to that mirror and look at it face on, God in human form. And verse 4, do you see that there? He is able to complete it. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Please stop for a moment. It wasn't met in us. It was met in Jesus. But if you're someone who trusts in Jesus, remarkably the Bible tells us that even though we have failed, if our faith is in him, the righteous requirement of the law in every part is fully met in us. Because he is there as the substitute. He is there, we read verses 3 and 4, as the sin offering. This perfect man is there in our place. This law-keeping man is in place of all our law-breaking sin. Ray Orton lifts our hearts as he says this. We do not need more frightening punishments. We do, don't need more withering scoldings. We need the all-sufficiency of Jesus applied in rich measure to our deepest points of personal need. 
after the anguish of the broken law and our sinful powerlessness, Paul reassures us of our bedrock confidence before God. It's our union with Christ. Look at verse 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If God has drawn you to himself, then he has placed you in the protective security of Jesus. We have been united with him in his death. We will be united with him in his resurrection. Think of it. In Christ Jesus. As you know, we are house hunting at the moment. And so many folks have been very kind, keeping us in mind. As they think about or have seen uh, uh, properties up for sale. And almost every time we viewed a house or read the schedule for a property, the word location always appears. Ideal location for the town. Great location for all the local amenities. Perfect location for commuting to Belfast or Londonderry. Great location for a family and nearby schools. And all these features are very attractive in their own way of what it might mean to live in that house or settle in that street. But how much more we have if we are in Christ Jesus? What riches. What freedom. What location. That means all that he is. His goodness. His law keeping. His relationship with the Father. His perfect life. All credited to us because we are in him. And that is why there's no condemnation for us. We are now viewed as law keepers and obedient because when God the Father looks at his Son, he sees us. Do you know that relief in your life tonight? Oh, friend watching at home or friend here in Union Road, I hope you know the relief of that in your life tonight. What it is to be in Christ Jesus. That when you look up from your muckraking of your messy marriage or your painful existence due to illness, or that disappointment over a job interview, or those doubts that swirl as the evil one whispers in your ear once again, there you go, you've let him down again. See that flag hoisted high, flying above your quivering soul, and take renewed confidence in the gospel fact that there is therefore now no condemnation, because you're in Christ. And the other new thing that our God has done for us He's not only given us his son, he's given us his spirit. This chapter is this most spirit-filled chapter in Romans. The spirit is mentioned 17 times in Romans chapter 8. And as we read of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, what comfort he brings as he floods our souls with new life, we'll keep seeing the Holy Spirit in this chapter over the next few weeks. But I want to describe to you tonight that the Holy Spirit is the liberator. The liberator. If Jesus has won our freedom by his sacrifice at the cross, it is as if God's Holy Spirit comes along and we are lying there helpless and hopeless. It's as if, imagine this, you're chained to your condemnation and awaiting God's impending judgment for your law-breaking. It's almost like you're in a very dark prison cell of no escape and the Holy Spirit comes and first of all, he resurrects your life and he brings us from death to life and then he opens our eyes for us. And he unshackles our chains so that we can move. And he fills that cell with light. And he leads us out and he brings us out to the place. And all he wants us to do is look long and hard at Jesus. 
the dead and resurrected lawkeeper for us, the dead and now resurrected lawbreaker. The Holy Spirit sets us free. He enables us to, to value Christ and see that great flag of forgiveness flying high. You see, if you're not a Christian tonight, the Holy Spirit isn't in you. And that means you're looking at that flag and thinking, huh? No big deal. But if you are a believer tonight, the Holy Spirit is within you and your heart leaps when you see there is therefore now no condemnation because you're in Christ. You see, if Jesus is the freedom fighter, the Holy Spirit is the freedom giver. He applies to our hearts what has already happened. Before we came to Christ, we lived, it says here repeatedly, in the flesh. That just kind of in our own way went our own natural way. But if we become Christians, we live now by the Spirit. And this is what was promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, of all places. But I love what it says there. Listen to what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26. It's on the screen, I think, is it? Yep, it is. It says, And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you, and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and give you a tender, responsive heart. That's how often I know someone has come to faith in Jesus. I always remember somebody came up to me, and I, I, this is years back, I, I would preach this series somewhere in, on Amos, and I couldn't remember any of the sermons I'd preached. But about 18 months later, this guy arrived at church one Sunday, and he said to me, David, do you remember that sermon you preached in Amos chapter 3? I haven't a clue. He said, it has spoken to me every day since. And I love that book now. I could barely tell you too much about the book of Amos, to be honest, right now, standing on my feet. But he said, I've read it every day, and it has meant so much to me. What had happened? God, by his Spirit, had opened his eyes so he could see the truth of God's Word, and he had come to faith in Christ. That's how I know someone's come to faith in Jesus, because this book doesn't just seem dry and dusty and out of date. It's suddenly people will say to me, David, it was as if I was the only person in the room. That's how you know God's Spirit is speaking to you. That's how you know you're a believer. Whenever it suddenly feels like the spotlight's on you and this word is for you, you say, that what? That's God by His Spirit. Turning stony hearts into soft hearts. Suddenly things we hear from God's Word seem alive and real. Suddenly, yes, even sermons seem appealing and Bible reading seems fascinating. Suddenly we want to obey God. We want to allow him to lead us in his law, precious to us, because he saved us. And we see his greatness. And because we're in awe of Christ and filled with his spirit, we respond to him. We have soft hearts and we have that warmth of his love. Which leads on to my last point as we finish tonight. We thought about something old, the law we couldn't keep. Something new that Jesus kept for us and his spirit applies to our hearts. Some of you might have guessed the last point. Not borrowed, but given to you. You know, as we read these verses, and Scott touched upon it in his opening prayer tonight, we owe our old lives and the trouble they give us nothing. We owe our old lives nothing. Why? Why? Because that was the one-way ticket to hell. 
that was the one-way ticket to condemnation. But if we are the no-condemnation people, things change. You see, before we came to Jesus as Savior, we lived the kind of life that would only lead to death. Look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh. That's the old way of life to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. We're called to a kind of death that will actually lead to life. We have an obligation as Jesus-filled, or Jesus-saved, spirit-filled, not condemned, freed for glory people. Here's the last big picture I want to leave with you tonight. It's a very simple picture. Imagine that you've always wanted to own a safari park, a huge acreage of land in which you could gather and house a range of rare and exotic animals from all over the world, mainly for your own interest and pleasure. It's what you want to do, but you've absolutely no means of funding it until a very wealthy friend appears one day, a friend from way back, and he says, look, I want what's best for you. I'll give you the money. I've heard about these grand ideas. So as he gets his checkbook out, he asks, how much do you need? And so you gratefully receive the check and the project begins and you've always been very careful along the way then to keep them informed about what you've done and the land you've bought and the animals that you're bringing in and their new habitat until one day he arrives and having shown him around, he's pretty impressed apart from one thing. There's just one animal. And he says, you know, I like what you've done here, but I think you need to get rid of that one. It's rare, I know, but it's not safe. There's just something about, there's something sinister about that animal. There's a look in its eyes that I suggest you get rid of it before it causes you any more trouble. Well, you know, he's given you the money. You've got everything you have, really, because of him, but you're the expert when it comes to safari parks and animals, so you hear him, but you don't hate him. Next time he's back, he brings his family. And as you walk the park together, you sense his increased displeasure for this rare and dangerous animal has grown even bigger than it was before. And you fed it and you've cared for it and you've got people who look after it for you. And, and he just shakes his head and says, let me tell you, that beast is danger. That beast is danger. But you walk on with him and you sit down with a cup of coffee from the viewing area and there's a bit of tension between you. But all of a sudden, there's an almighty scream and a roar. And the crowds are dispersing below, and you look on in horror to see one of your friend's children has fallen into the rare animal enclosure and is hideously savaged by it. It's a horrible sight, and you have this deep, sinking feeling in your stomach, just wishing you'd listened to him. Oh, what pain it has caused him, and what guilt you now have. And so from that day on, you're left with a choice. Kill the beast or keep the beast. Pack it off or continue to treat it like a personal pet. End its life before it ends yours. Why keep the beast that killed your best and most generous friends, son.
You all know where I'm going, don't you? It's by no means a perfect illustration, but I think you're beginning to see what I'm saying, what Paul pursues in these last few verses. Verses 12 and 13 that we just read, if you live by the flesh, you're going to die. If you live by God's Spirit, you'll live. Are you going to heed the warning of the God who has given us everything and written us the generous check of grace and family and friendship and life and health and given us the Son who went into the beast's enclosure for you and for me? How dare we keep the beast alive in our lives? The old theological term for this is to mortify sin. You hear people say, oh, I'm mortified. Be like, oh, just I'd curl up and die. But the old phrase means something much more serious. To mortify sin means kill sin before sin kills And if you think Paul's going over the top here, it's nothing compared to what Jesus says, is it? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Folks, this is deadly serious. If you don't take sin seriously in your life, it'll take you to hell. If you're like me, sin can be a wee bit like those trick birthday candles. You know those ones? You blow them out with a smile, thinking of your wish, but then your jaw drops as they burst out into flames again every couple of minutes, don't they? They're really annoying, actually, aren't they? sin. Never ever think that our war against sin in this world is over. There's never a ceasefire with sin in our lives. But many Christian people don't take sin seriously and they end up feeding the beast and living in ignorance of its power and its presence. Oh yes, we keep a careful track on our bank accounts, our stocks and our shares, our properties, our assignments, our grades and our sports scores. We make sure our cars are gleaming and waxed and our gardens are trim and manicured. We take care of our hair, our makeup, our looks, our size, our shape, our health, our fitness. But how many people give the least thought to the soul? If it's important to care for these bodies of ours that will live to, what, 80, 90 years max? which will soon die and rot, how much more important is it to look after the soul? Maybe you're here tonight, maybe you're watching tonight, and you started so well in your Christian life, or you started so well in your your business. You wanted to take a stand as a Christian businessman or woman, or maybe you started so well in your marriage as a Christian and your family with all the right priorities, but over time you've let standards slip. You've become less honest not so pleasant, a bit more ruthless, uncooperative, greedy. Kill the sin before that sin kills you. What's God saying to you tonight? What's tolerated in your life that you know you must get rid of? Where have you left yourself unguarded and vulnerable? 
Chris Lungard puts it very well when he says this. Your mind can only protect against the deceit of the flesh if you are cross-eyed. That is, you can only keep the rottenness of sin and the kindness of God in mind if you fix your eyes on the cross. What shows God's hatred of sin more than the cross? But what shows God's love to you more than the cross? If you want to know exactly what your sin deserves, you have to understand the cross. If you want to know how infinitely deep the rot of sin reaches, you have to think to the implications of the cross. If you want to know how far God was willing to go to rescue you from your sin, you have to see his precious son hanging on the cross for you. God has done that for us. For we did not and we could not. And that changes everything. Do you really believe that? Why swap the now, yes, that now, no condemnation of God and the freedom that he brings through the gift of his son and his life-giving spirit for muckraking in the straw of this world? The acceptance of that powerful and soul-saving declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus must be seen in a life of transformation for us. Are you living for yourself today? For if you are, that will mean eternal death. Or are you dying to yourself and your own desires today? Friends, in Christ Jesus, that will lead to life. You see the flag flutter? There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the declaration. If we really understood the declaration, your life will know utter transformation. Let's pray together. Father, our simple prayer at the end of our time together tonight is make us cross-eyed. For there we see the rottenness of our sin and what it did to Jesus. But it's also there we see the love of our Father in the giving of his Son so that we might be saved. Father, may this no condemnation in our hearts lead to great transformation in our lives. And as we work our way through this most wonderful of chapters together, may there be evident change in us as we see the glory and the wonder of the Father who sends, the Son who died, the Spirit who gives life. Try in God, move in us, and change us, we pray. Amen. Well, if there's anything that maybe I've touched on tonight uh, that you maybe want to talk to me about, don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, whether people watching at home or even some of the folks here this evening, more than happy to chat to you about God's Word and its implications for our lives. Thank you.